We tend to take electricity for granted. It provides light. It powers our phones, computers, and household appliances. And soon electricity may become the key to dealing with climate change, replacing fossil fuels as the power source for automobiles, buses, and heating our homes and buildings. With so much at stake, it's no wonder the public is starting to pay more and more attention to how electricity is produced, how it is priced, and how it is delivered to where it is used. Our guest today is Gordon Van Wheelie, a key player in that emerging debate. Mr. Van Wheelie is the president and CEO of the organization that manages the New England power grid. He's the guy charged with keeping the lights on in the region. Welcome, Gordon. Good morning, Bruce. It's uh, lovely to see you uh, and speak to you. And um, let me compliment you on your choice of the name Codcast. I think it's uh, very appropriate and uh, <laughs> like it a lot. So I'm looking forward to this discussion. So let's start by framing the issue a bit. Um, I've been following some of the comments you've been making over the last number of months. You've been issuing, and I guess this has been happening more and more over the last couple of years. You've been issuing warnings about the vulnerability of the region's power grid, particularly in the winter months. Can you explain what you are worried about? Yes. Um, well, you know, the short answer is I'm worried about us having enough security on the energy inputs to the electric grid in order to be able to have enough electricity supply to match the demand for electricity. And I can unpack that for you a little further, if you would like. Please do. Okay. So one of the things I started talking about in the last few months is <clears throat> what I term the four pillars necessary to ensure a successful clean energy transition. Because Bruce, as you started this conversation, you pointed out that the grid becomes the major source of energy um, for powering the economy in a world where we are moving to clean energy. And so in order to be able to have a conversation about how does reliability fit into that picture, I thought it might be good to try and break it down in a simple way that we can think about uh, the necessary ingredients to a successful clean energy transition. So we, you know, the grid's in a complicated thing and the regulatory system around the grid is a complicated uh, system. And so people often are bemused by it, but really when you, you know, step away from it, the grid is a collection of wires tied to machines that convert input sources of energy into electricity. So that's actually in some ways pretty simple. And if you think about uh, that for a moment, if we are going to power our economy using clean energy, which comes from uh, the wind or solar power, um, and that's going to power the bulk or produce the bulk of the electricity. Uh, so those weather inputs are going to go into machines that produce electricity. We all know that the weather is unpredictable. And so if you think about maintaining a reliable system, you have to have some other predictable source of energy input into the electric grid in order to balance that variability from the sun and the wind. That just sort of stands to reason, right? Right. And, uh, and the problem we have in New England is that we don't have a very predictable input source into the electric grid um, at certain times, uh, particularly during the winter time when the gas pipelines are constrained. So that's a problem. Um, and I think the other thing that I've been saying more recently is that we need to have some store of um, energy that we can call on. 
for extended periods. Uh, when we encounter a situation like the winter doldrums and where, where there's no wind, there's very little sun <clears throat> and it could be cold and we could end up having a few outages in the system as well. Because if we don't have that predictable store of energy accessible to us, uh, we might be forced into a situation where the only place we can go as a system operator is to balance um, supply and demand by trimming back demand to match the available supply. And so just to come back to this idea of the four pillars, I've said there's really four things we need to do in order to ensure a successful clean energy transition. And if we don't have each of these pillars be strong, then the whole system is weak. So the first pillar is enough renewable energy in order to power the economy. And that means adding a lot more renewable energy. The second pillar is the transmission to both interconnect that renewable energy, but also to be able to move it around the region. And we've been doing studies that show that the demand for electricity is gonna double or treble over the next um, three decades. So that means we can add a lot of renewables and a lot of transmission in order to scale the system up. The third pillar is we, have, we need to have enough balancing energy resources. These are resources that can be called on at a moment's notice to be able to supply the balancing energy, um, balancing electricity uh, into the electric uh, markets. And of course they need um, an input energy source in order to be converted into electricity, which takes me to the fourth pillar, which is we need some form of uh, energy reserve uh, in the region. So those things are all, to me, fundamentally important if we're going to make the clean energy uh, transition be successful. And too often, I think we've, we, end up, we end up being uh, trapped in one of those conversations. So the, you know, the conversation might be all about the transmission needed to in integrate the renewables, all about the fact that we're not going fast enough um, on the deployment of renewables, or there's not enough money in the wholesale electricity markets to pay for the balancing resources. Or as you've heard me speak more recently during the course of the winter, we're vulnerable to not having enough of an energy reserve in the region to be able to deal with either contingencies or periods when there are shortages from um, the production of renewables. So uh, when I rolled this framework out in the uh, December timeframe, um, I, I graded each one of those pillars in terms of how well we're doing here in New England. And uh, I said, with regard to renewable deployment, I'd give us an amber, an orange light. So we're not going fast enough to meet the goals that have been prescribed in legislation around the, the various states in, in, in this region. So that's why I give it an amber. Although we've made great progress and you know, there's all kinds of benefits coming from what has been deployed to date, it's clear we're not going fast enough. The second um, pillar I would grade as a green for now because we have made a big investment in the transmission system over the past 15 years. And it's allowed us to actually integrate the first wave of renewables and retire uh, a lot of the uh, old legacy uh, power plants. And that would not have occurred without that investment. And that was a, like a $12 billion investment. Uh, the reason I say green for now is that it's clear that it's difficult to build new transmission. And there are many examples of that recently. And so if we are really going to scale the system up, we're going to have to 
tackle that problem uh, with renewed vigor. So I'd say green for now could be trending to a yellow. With regard to the, uh, the market structure for paying for the balancing resources, I'd say that's an amber as well. There are warning signs there. Um, we've just published a report that is called the Pathways Report that shows what happens to wholesale electricity prices as we add more and more renewables onto the system. And basically it drives those prices to very low levels and probably in 10 to 15 years from now to negative prices, which is a big problem. So the markets are not gonna work very well at all uh, in, that, uh, in that context. And so I'd say that's amber for now and could trend to red if we don't do something about it. And then the fourth element is the energy uh, adequacy uh, pillar. Uh, as I've said, a, a need for some form of energy reserve that we can count on in the region. And I'd say that's a red for, for now. That's probably our biggest threat. And we're paying the price for it now. I think if you look at what's happened over this past winter, this past winter was mild. Um, Noah was right. It was an above average mild winter, although there were a few cold days in January and we experienced a number of contingencies that we worried about, luckily not during the cold weather. Um, it's the second most expensive winter in our history of the wholesale markets and surpassed only by the winter of 2013-14 when we had a polar vortex. And in that winter, we had a lot more um, resource available to us than we had this past winter. Uh, and the reason things were so expensive this past winter was because oil and gas prices were so high. And the reason those prices were so high is because of what's going on uh, in the Ukraine at the moment. And I was just looking at the ISO app yesterday. I was down in DC at a, at a conference. And you know, on a spring day, we have low demand conditions uh, in the spring normally. It was a sunny day, so there was a fair amount of solar on the system and wind, and yet prices were running in the $450 per megawatt hour range. And that's because of the price of gas. And if you look at the, the forward prices right now on gas, they're very high for the coming winter. Uh, and that's because this region has tied itself to global LNG prices. And you know, so I think it's not only a reliability concern, I think it's also it's economic concern for the region. So um, yeah, and in January, for people that might be found in a climate change effort, there was a huge sort of increase in the amount of oil and even coal that was being used as that source fuel for producing electricity uh, because gas was so expensive. Other fuels were stepping in fuels that perhaps we wouldn't want to be burning uh, to produce electricity, right? That's correct. So if you think, you know, there are two forms of oil that we use. Um, in addition, there's one remaining coal-fired power plant uh, in the region. So typically when gas prices get really high because of the constraints in the gas pipelines and the fact that we then end up paying global prices for LNG, in that context, you will find oil to be less expensive. And so you'll burn a lot of it, which is exactly what happened in this past winter. Um, and there are two forms of oil. There's the, the light oil, which is typically similar to the home heating oil that people use. Around 50% of New Englanders still heat their homes with heating oil. And so the, the form of the oil that you're using to heat your home and the, and the light oil that's being used 
by the combined cycle facilities is comparable. And, uh, but the, the worst form of oil is the residual oil, which is uh, utilized by some of the older steam units. These are units that you know, were built 50, 60 years ago. And you know, they have comparable carbon intensity to burning coal in the region. And so I, you know, I think I look at that situation and say, we're, we're harming our objective to decarbonize because of our, the constraint that we've created around utilizing gas. And of course we have to get off gas in the long run because we won't hit the de decarbonization goals. But I really see gas as the only option for balancing the system at the moment. And eventually you might be able to go from uh, you know, methane, uh, carbon, uh, gas with a carbon content to it, to some clean fuel uh, which co with comparable energy density, like clean hydrogen would be one example. And there's a lot of conversation about clean hydrogen and the DOEs making big investments in that. But we need a strategy in this region to say, what's our balancing energy input into the system? And how do we decarbonize that? And I don't see any focus on that problem in the region. We're just relying on essentially season by season spot purchases of uh, imported fuels. And eventually we're going to come up short with that strategy. And this uh, war in Ukraine and the effort in Europe and other countries to get off of Russian gas. Uh, so there's a a stronger demand than perhaps ever before for, for natural gas. How does that play out here in New England? Uh, because I know we've gotten LNG from Russia in the past, maybe not that much, I'm not sure, but is there a, is there a concern that this problem could worsen because of this war and the effort to wean off of Russian gas? Well, I'm certainly concerned about it. And I, you know, in speaking to others in the industry, I hear similar expressions of concern so most New Englanders probably don't know that once the pipelines reach maximum capacity, um, and typically that happens when it gets cold, because those pipelines, you know, the transportation on those pipelines uh, is really paid for and owned by heating customers, not the gas-fired generators. So what happens then is that we then switch to burning oil or uh, imported LNG. The imported LNG uh, has to come from other parts of the world. We cannot use US LNG. So the, the irony here is the president is working hard to send US LNG to Europe in order to allow Europe to wean itself off Russian gas. And New England can't get US LNG. We can't even get it through the New Brunswick Cannaport facility up in Canada because it would then enter into the US fire pipeline. And that restriction is because of the Jones Act, which was put in place in the 1920s. Uh, and essentially the, the Jones Act prohibits the transport of US goods from one US port to another on a foreign vessel. And there are no US owned vessels that can tra transport LNG. So all the LNG tankers in the world are foreign owned. And that's because it's a lot less expensive to build these ships elsewhere. I've heard um, I've heard that as much as half a billion dollars less expensive to build those ships somewhere else in the world. So it's, it's not made economic sense for the industry to build LNG vessels here in the US. 
And so we end up with this situation where um, New England in, in, ends up importing from other parts of the world. So sources have included Qatar in the past, uh, but Qatar is no longer a major source of energy for us in, uh, in New England. I think they primarily focused on Asia and Europe now. Uh, there's been, there have been some uh, tankers that have come in from Russia. Uh, you'll remember the Boston Globe story in the 2017-2018 timeframe. I think there were a couple of tankers that came in from Russia at that point in time. I'm not aware of any since then, um, although there was you know, a conversation this past winter as to whether we would end up needing to do that. But I think the suppliers steered around that and, and sourced the gas from somewhere else. The bulk of our gas imported energy today comes from Trinidad, uh, which if you look at where Trinidad is, it's just off the coast of South America, so just above Venezuela. So um, that's where we get our gas today. And so you've got to think about the carbon content of that. I mean, the gas is coming out of the ground somewhere in South America. It's being liquefied and then put in a boat and transported all the way up here into New England. And, uh, and then we're using it, of course, when we need it. And, you know, I look at that as a, and I think that's not a sensible strategy in the long run. <clears throat> it never uh, appealed to me as a robust solution, but it's all we have at the moment. And, and now we're tying ourselves or have tied ourselves to global LNG prices as a result. And because the, the market for global LNG is fierce, um, I listened to a presentation two months ago before the war started, where this was in the context of the rising prices in, in uh, Europe. Just to put some context on this, you know, typically when the pipelines are unconstrained uh, and we can source Marcellus shale gas from Pennsylvania, gas prices might be 2 to $3. This was before the war, obviously. obviously. So this is uh, late 2021. Um, in the winter time, when things are not too crazy up here in New England, you know, gas prices might be five or six dollars. Um, the LNG prices in Europe got to forty and sixty dollars per million BTU during the course of the winter last year, and uh, and so when you create that context, you understand why suddenly it's more e economic to utilize oil in order to um, generate electricity. And everything that we're seeing at the moment indicates the forwards for next winter are gonna stay very high because of course, Europe is trying to wean itself off Russian gas. It can only do so by importing more LNG. And the presentation I listened to said that the demand for LNG in Asia is basically inelastic. Um, Korea, Japan, China have uh, entered into long-term contracts for LNG to supply that fuel uh, to their economies the swing demand on the system is Europe. And Europe has just swung up in a very big way and will probably stay up uh, for a long time to come. Uh, and so that's going to put upward pressure on LNG prices and it's going to impact energy costs here in New England for some time to come. So I think it's a big economic problem for us as a region. And furthermore, if, you know, if we can't source the fuel when we need it, um, it may become a reliability problem. And, and so it does worry me. Let me ask you about something other, else that is a bit hard for a lot of us to follow. Um, it's the minimum offer price rule. Uh, oh. 
This has generated a lot of controversy lately because your organization was supportive of, I believe, this is what I've read, of phasing that out over a period of time uh, and then changed its mind. And talk a little bit about what it does and why that happened. Yeah, so I wouldn't say we changed our mind, but I'll, I understand why some might think that. So I'll come back and explain that. So first of all, let me explain what the minimum offer price rule is. So if you think, remember I said to you that the, the, there are these four pillars. The third pillar is having a wholesale market structure that provides sufficient revenues to balancing resources so that they can do their job. Embedded within that wholesale market structure are three markets, the energy market, the ancillary services market, and the capacity market. And the bulk of the money flows through the energy market. The ancillary services market really pays for special services um, in addition to providing energy. So it's more to do with sort of grid reliability um, issues. The capacity market essentially makes up the difference needed uh, to pay for generators that don't run all the time. Uh, so the it's really, you can think about the capacity market as an insurance payment to make sure that there's enough generation capacity around to meet the peaks on the system. Um, because on average, we're only needing something less than the peak demand. And so there's a lot of generation that basically sits idle for large portions of the year, but you need it when you are in the summer peak or in the winter peak. So these markets are all based on, on the marginal price um, needed to provide that reliability service. And so when you have a market that is just consists of merchant generation, where the only revenue source are the revenues in those wholesale electricity markets, then you can get the right price coming out of that market structure. But then if what you do is you insert into that market resources that are getting a site payment somewhere, and in this case, a site payment through state contracts, for example, you create a price distortion in the market and you end up reducing the amount of revenue available to be uh, available to the, the merchant resources who only survive on revenues in the wholesale market. And, and so in order to correct that price distortion, we uh, put in place a system. It was the minimum offer price rule plus something called uh, Casper, which was a substitution auction for people who wanted to buy their way into the capacity market to try and create some uh, price protection uh, against this entry of subsidized resource into the market. And you know that was a very controversial conversation the, the problem one has here in terms of these markets is dealing with subsidies essentially that come from outside of the market. And we see that all the time in mean, these big conversations in the US as to, you know, why are there no more producers of solar panels in the US? Well, because the solar panel producers in China get subsidized by the Chinese government and they can undercut all the US producers of solar panels. So it's a comparable problem. Uh, and a very hard problem to solve from a market design perspective. Uh, and you know, at the federal level, level, we try and compensate for these things with tariffs and so forth. And, uh, and so what the MOPA was, was a mechanism to try and produce some price certainty for investors that were not receiving price uh, side payments. It didn't work very well. 
for a variety of reasons. I don't need to unpack that now. Uh, but suffice to say, we agreed to take it out um, be, because ultimately the states um, were concerned that if we didn't do that, it would in the long run be an inefficiency created where the uh, resources that they were signing up for through state uh, uh, contracts would end up incrementally being a bit more expensive because they would be uh, precluded from entering into this capacity market. The minimum offer price rule really was a way for the market monitor to look at the payments being received by a project to make sure that they weren't receiving a subsidy. And if they were receiving a subsidy, you would strip out the, strip out the subsidy and reset their offer to a higher price. That was really what it was doing. So by agreeing to take out the price protection um, in the capacity market, you then have to have another way of sort of dealing with that. And, and that's another complicated discussion. Maybe we can talk about that in a whole separate podcast. Um, but we agreed to take it out. And of course, uh, one of the reasons we agreed was not only because of the states um, saying they wanted us to take it out, but also our federal regulator in the form of Chairman Glick making it very clear that he wanted us to take it out. So now the problem is, how do you how do you go about taking it out? Do you take it out in one fell swoop or do you try and phase it out? And so here I'll use another analogy. The Federal Reserve sees inflation and says, we've got to do something about interest rates to try and uh, mitigate inflation. So they tell us, um, you know, we think we need to get um, the, the interest rate up to roughly 3%. But what they tell the market is we'll do that in quarter percent or half percent hikes over a period of time. They don't shock the system by saying we're going from zero to 3% in one decision. And really, if you can think about the transition that we uh, ultimately brought forward after it emerged in the stakeholder process, it does that. It basically feathers in a certain amount of renewable, uh, additional renewable entry into the capacity market over a two-year period and eventually eliminates it. But it gives the marketplace some certainty uh, and allows them to get their house in order um, as we go through that transition and you reduce the shock to the system. The, the numbers we came up with in that context were done in consultation uh, with, the, with the New England state regulators. And you know, they looked at it carefully in the sense that they wanted to make sure we weren't gonna um, sort of become a barrier to some of the big projects they were signing up for. And so the number, the, the renewable exemption that was agreed to during that couple of year period is such that it's gonna allow a good 2000 megawatts uh, of nameplate capacity to come through the system. And you know, from everything we're seeing, that's not gonna create a massive impediment to the new entry of, of renewable resources during that period of time. So the, 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 the reaction I think that everybody had to this, um, you know, very depending on your economic position in the marketplace, so those that were merchant investors liked it because it gave them some certainty. Those that were afraid that somehow if we didn't take it out right away, that it would never go away, reacted neg negatively and said, you know, on balance, we would much prefer a, a instant removal of the minimum offer price rule rather than a, uh, a two-year phase out. 
But of course, the folks that are thinking about it from that perspective are thinking about it from the perspective of their economic interests as well. And we're looking at it from the perspective of saying, what's the um, deliberate measured approach to removing this uh, feature from the marketplace in a way that we don't create an instability in the market that would then result in other problems. And so, you know, I think you're going to get these different reactions to what we did, depending on your vantage point and, and the lens you're looking through, whether you're looking at the world through a reliability lens, whether you're looking at it through the world of um, the economics of uh, one project or another. Hopefully that um, helped unpack that. I don't know whether I've made the um, made it more complicated for you with that uh, with that uh, explanation. No, I think I follow it generally pretty well. But the one thing that always confuses me is if, say, Massachusetts signs a contract with an offshore wind producer. Yes. And and ratepayers in Massachusetts agree to pay for the cost of that project. Why would it be a hindrance if uh, why do they need to get into this uh, capacity market? Because it means more money for them, but they've already got a, their, their projects paid for by ratepayers separately from that market. I can see why you'd like to have everybody in the same marketplace, but, but why, why pay them more when they've already been paid, basically? Well, I think that's a good question, um, particularly for those resources that for which contracts were entered when the rule was in place, because ultimately the uh, folk who made their offers into that system knew that they would be filtered out and then presumably built that additional cost into their contract. So they are kept whole. They should be neutral on this really. Well, probably not neutral because if somebody can offer you more money, that would be good outcome. You could view that as a windfall, perhaps. But I think the concern really is if these uh, projects, let's say the offshore wind projects, have some capacity value, and they do, uh, how do you capture that capacity value in the PPA that you sign? So actually looking forward, if you could know that you get access to those revenues, you would presumably lower your price for the PPA. It would look less expensive. So the cost of the power purchase agreement would drop by some increment because the developer knows they can count on getting access to a revenue stream in the capacity market. So when you look at it narrowly from the perspective of that particular project and that developer and that PPA, that's a win for that project. It might be a net problem for the market as a whole because you've actually um, introduced a subsidized resource into the capacity market but that's a problem that now has to be solved some other way and and you know as I mentioned that's another 20 minute conversation about how we solve that that particular problem because in in taking out one protective measure it forces us into having to do other things to try and restore some balance in the capacity market. So one last question, and this is a short one, I'm hoping, uh, because we're going to wrap up. But it seems like you've come under fire, your organization and you personally have come under fire recently for, you know, in a sense, raising these pillar problems that you're talking about. Uh, and it, it can be for a variety. Sometimes it's technical, but I hear a lot of opposition because people just, they want to move to renewables right away. They don't want natural gas. And you're sort of saying... 
well, I'm happy for to do that too, but we got to have fuels that back up renewables and we've got to have enough renewables on the system. You're sort of digging into the complications of the problem, it seems to me, and coming under fire in a sense for doing that. Um, is that the way you feel or is, am I, have I got that wrong? Oh, we, I certainly do feel like I'm under fire and that the organization as a whole is under fire. I'm not doing that because I like being under fire. I think it's um, our job to explain what's needed in order to make this successful and particularly to make sure that people understand what's needed in order to ensure a reliable power system. And, you know, so we will always act in a manner that will maintain reliability on the bulk power system. And one of the tools in our toolbox is to reduce demand in order to balance, to meet supply, if that's needed. We would view that as maintaining reliability because what we're doing there is avoiding a blackout, you know, complete meltdown of the system or complete collapse of the system, which might take days to put it back together again. So that's a protective measure. And we practice that all the time with the owners of the assets in, in the region. When we do that, however, it's not going to feel like reliability. It's going to feel like somebody is turning your lights out because it's going to be an outage that hopefully is able to be rotated amongst customers over time, unlike what happened in Texas a year ago. But we know that's going to be very uncomfortable um, or worse, and it's going to have an economic effect. And we want people to know that that's a real risk, that we're not you know, just saying this because we want our life to be easy. We want people who live in this region to understand this is a real risk. And it, it, what it does is it stimulates a conversation about what we should do to mitigate that risk. It could be that as a, as a region, we decide the risk is such a low probability and it's not gonna occur that often that we'll live with the risk. Then I think we need to be well prepared to deal with those events when they come. Or we could say we could spend a bit more money on trying to mitigate the risk, put in place an energy reserve, for example, make sure that there's you know, enough resource on the system so that we can ride through these periods when we have insufficient energy input into, into, the, uh, into the electric system. So you know, we, we have to operate the system. We want people to understand what we've got to work with and what the constraints are. Ultimately, we don't own any of the assets. We have two buildings with a bunch of engineers and economists and lawyers and financial people to help administer the markets. We do not own any of the assets. We can't do this on our own. You can think of us really as air traffic control at the airport. We don't own any of the planes or the runways or any of that infrastructure. All we can do is to you know, help the planes land and take off. And so the region's ability to have a reliable power system through this clean energy transition is a function of the states and the market participants and the ISO working together, together with the federal regulator. So it's a very complex regulatory system that we operate in. It's a bifurcated regulatory system. Uh, the feds have control of one part of it, the states have control of the other. And we're in the middle trying to manage all, all of this from an operational point of view. And, and the folks that make the decision 
um, on, on all of these really important matters, including state legislators, need to understand that when they tug on one thread and one end of the system, it has an impact somewhere else in the system. And so we just want transparency on that conversation so that we can find a way to make this work together, work well for all of us in this region. There's 15 million people that depend on the system working well. And that's the reason we're being forthright about the issues. Gordon Van Wheelie, thanks very much for joining us today. This, this was a really informative discussion. And to our listeners, we'll see you again next week. Thank you. Thank you, Bruce.